0: Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Megan Thorpe, and I'm an attorney at Baskin, Kirshner & Thorpe here in Boston, I'm presenting with my partner, Jordana Kirshner, today. And we, uh, Jordana and I, practice exclusively family law. Um, I've been practicing for about 15 years now. Um, and I am going to be talking today about child support. Um, so if you have a case involving unemancipated children, and I'll define the term emancipated in a moment. um, It's likely that you are going to need to address the issue of child support in your case. And in Massachusetts, uh, child support is calculated based on the child support guidelines, which are um, state guidelines that are updated every four years. Um, The child support guidelines um, include a worksheet, which Um, contains a formula for calculating child support. And I would strongly suggest, um, we've we've provided the child support guidelines for purposes of today's program, but you can actually, and I would suggest that you log in and download the the form that's self-calculating and fillable, um, which is available on the court's website. Um, and, And the child support guidelines take into account a number of different factors. So they're based on the number of children, the ages of the children, and the ages are broken out into two categories, children under 18 and children over 18. Um, The parenting plan, and whether it's a 50-50 shared physical custody plan, or whether it's uh, more of a traditional one-thirds, two-thirds plan where one parent has substantially more parenting time than the other. Um, and there are options you'll see in the guidelines just to check whatever box is applicable or um, closest resembles the, the facts in your case. Um, the guidelines also take into account the party's incomes and incomes for purposes of child support are based on gross or pre tax income figures. Um, the guidelines also take into account the cost of health insurance paid by each party and the cost of child care. They also take into account um, uh, any other support obligations that a party may have, um, such as child support um, from a prior relationship or a prior marriage. Um, and the guidelines. The current guidelines, and this is one of the aspects of the guidelines that tends to change every four years, um, are based on the first $400,000 of the party's combined incomes. Um, And if the party's combined incomes exceed $400,000, then the court has the discretion to order additional child support to be paid on that excess portion of the payor's income. Um, Alternatively, the court can order that alimony be paid on the excess income. And in a moment, later on in the presentation, we're going to tell you a little bit about the Kavanaugh case, which was decided by the SJC in 2022. And that case goes into greater detail about the different approaches to calculating support in a case where you you potentially have both child support and alimony. So, when you have a hearing involving or a case involving child support, and you maybe you're in the process of filing a motion or you're, you're filing an opposition to a motion regarding support, um, it's important that, that you file with your motion or your opposition, a copy of your proposed child support calculation. And you can even file a few different versions of those child support guidelines with the court because the judges do look at everything and they'll consider kind of all different variations and possibilities when making an order about child support. Um, And so this allows you to kind of walk the court through each step and your thought process um, as to why the approach you're suggesting makes the most sense for this family. And and the other thing that you want to be careful about is when when you have a case where you're filing child support guidelines and you're also filing along with it a financial statement and you want to be very um, careful that the income and the child support and the health insurance figures reflected on that financial statement um, are the same figures that you're plugging into the child support guidelines because judges will use the financial statements to verify that the numbers that you've you've, um, plugged into the child support guidelines formula. And so you just wanna be sure that everything is consistent. Um, And while the child support guidelines are a relatively straightforward calculation, There are a variety of approaches you can take and different arguments you can make based on the facts in your case. So um, for example, with respect to income, um, if you represent the husband and the husband is the party who will be paying support and the husband receives a base salary, but also bonuses, um, you'll wanna think about what, what is the best argument you can make from a child support perspective in light of that particular fact pattern. Um, And and in that case, you may want to argue that child support should be based on his base salary only with additional support payable on bonuses if, as, and when received. You You wouldn't want to take the position, for example, that all of his income, his total income base plus bonus would be included in a base child support obligation because oftentimes bonus income is variable and can depend on a, per, a party's performance at work or the company's performance. And so, and, and they're generally not guaranteed. So so if you're representing the payor, um, you wouldn't wanna take the position that variable income like bonuses, commissions, things of that nature, would be includable for purposes of a base order. So you just want to be mindful when you're looking at the guidelines and considering different approaches. Um, how you know what what is the best argument you can make for your client? Um, similarly, with respect to um, the issue of childcare, if you're representing the party who's paying childcare, childcare can be very expensive. I would run the guidelines in including with childcare included and with childcare excluded as if the parties were sharing that equally outside of and in addition to child support and see how the numbers come out and see what the best argument is that you should be making on behalf of your client. Similarly with health insurance, health insurance can be very expensive. Um, If you have a client who has a very um, high premium or is on COBRA, you may wanna make the argument that health insurance should be excluded from the guidelines. Maybe it's more advantageous for that to be handled separately instead of included within the child support calculation. So um, I can't stress enough how how important it is to really run as many different scenarios as possible um, so that that you know the best possible argument that you can make for your client. Um, And it's also important, that you not only familiarize yourself, excuse me, with the child support worksheet, the guidelines worksheet itself, but also the guidelines and the commentary um, and the footnotes and why the um, task force implemented certain changes in the guidelines. And and those guidelines are very detailed and um, can help guide you as you're thinking about um, you know, different approaches uh, to the issue of child support. Um, I also wanted to touch on the issue of emancipation, which I mentioned earlier. Emancipation uh, means that uh, a child is uh, no longer dependent on uh, on a parent for support. And that's governed by Mass General Law, Chapter 208, Section 28. And emancipation is triggered typically um, in essentially three three circumstances. The first and the most common circumstance is age 23 or college graduation. And this is the most common because most kids these days are going on to a, a four-year college program. And so a child, most children are deemed emancipated when they graduate college or reach age 23. The second, most common point at which a child emancipates um, is age 21. And um, a child emancipates at age 21 when they're still dependent on parental or on a parent for support, but they're not you know, enrolled in college. Um, they're not working on a full-time basis. They're not um, self-supporting. Um, so it's kind of this hybrid uh, category. Um, And the third point at which a child emancipates is age 18, that's probably the least common point nowadays when a child emancipates because a child will only emancipate at age 18 if he or she goes on to work full time or enlists in the military or gets married. Um, And for those reasons, I think we we rarely see ourselves or see cases with children in that situation. So typically it's age 23 or that hybrid second scenario I described where a child is 21. Um, And then, so it's important just to be mindful of those different emancipation triggers when you're um, drafting child support language or advising clients about, you know, what kind of financial obligations they're going to have long-term. Another issue that commonly comes up in the context of child support is deviation. Uh, Deviation is when you request that the court enter a child support order that's different from the number generated by the child support guidelines. And it can be higher or it can be lower. Um, And there's a number of circumstances where it might be appropriate to ask the court to deviate. And and these are all laid out in the child support guidelines, um, but some of them include, but they include um, a child who might have ongoing special needs and tends to have more expenses uh, than than a typical child. Um, A parent who has extraordinary health insurance costs or childcare costs, which I mentioned before. Um, If a party lives out of state and has to incur significant expenses for airfare or hotels when um, to to exercise his or her parenting time. That's a consideration um, and that's something the courts certainly take into account um, when when potentially deviating from the guidelines um, if a party has no parenting time. So so I mentioned that typically you'll see a 50-50 schedule or a one-thirds, two-thirds schedule but there are some cases where a party may have very little or no parenting time. And in those cases, um, if you're representing the recipient of support, you'd wanna argue for an upward deviation because that your client would obviously then be uh, shouldering the lion's share of the child's or the children's expenses. Um, And finally, with respect to deviation, um, in cases where if you represent a low-income client um, or you have two parties that have very disproportionate incomes and you've kind of done your child support analysis and the child support figure um, generated by the guidelines is still insufficient. So you're arguing for an upward deviation. um, What I would recommend and what a lot of judges like to see is that you actually do, Kind of just a basic analysis of of the income each party has available to him or her after um, on an after tax basis, um, after payment of support or receipt of support. So how much available income is left in order to enable that party to meet his or her expenses? Um, And and that's that can be. a basis for the court to deviate and and just illustrating that for the judge is important um, because judges like to see how numbers shake out and judges want to be equitable. And so um, it's very helpful if you're able to walk a judge through the different factors and why you're proposing the deviation you're proposing. And um, I mentioned earlier on in um, this section of the presentation, the Kavanaugh case and how that pertains to the intersection of child support and alimony. And I, after Jordana um, addresses the issue of alimony, we'll circle back and I'll tie it all together and address the Kavanaugh case.
1: Thank you, Meg. Um, So as, as Meg said, um, we are partners at Bascom, Kirsten, and Thorpe. I uh, have been practicing for about 12 years. I'm a former uh, co-chair of the family law section of the Boston Bar Association. And I do also want to make sort of a shameless plug that we are looking to add an associate to our practice. So if you want to see, we do have our job posting on the Boston Bar Association's employment section. Um, So, you know, I've done this presentation for a number of years, and it's always quite a tall order to try to cram all of child support and alimony into a one-hour presentation. So we do want to sort of give the caveat that there's a lot here that we're just not going to be able to cover. Um, and the BBA has a lot of other programs that you know can go into more depth um, on one aspect or different aspects of child support. Um, and alimony, and this is really intended to be a little bit more um, sort of introductory. So um, we provided in the materials a copy of uh, the statutes governing alimony. Um, and I wanted to start with, some people might be surprised that I also included in this um, MGL chapter 28, section 34, because we typically think about that as our equitable distribution statute governing division of assets and divorce, but I did want to include that because I want to point out that um, it's about the fourth line down. It says that this assignment of the marital estate can be in addition to, or in lieu of a judgment to pay alimony. And so I think a lot of people gloss over that. And so it's important to remember in advocating for your client um, that there is this interplay between alimony and the division of the marital estate and that you can argue for or you can negotiate for possibly having um, a disproportionate division of the marital estate based on different alimony factors. Um, And the most common place where I've advocated for that or seen courts um, do that is in cases where maybe it's a long-term marriage but alimony is gonna be paid for a relatively short period of time because of the age of the alimony payor. And we'll get to that in a moment. But let's just say that we we do have a case like that. I have argued for and seen seen cases where people say, we're gonna divide the marital estate, you know, 60, 40 in favor of the alimony recipient um, in light of the fact that this alimony order is only going to be available for a short duration. So that's why I wanted to start by including um, section 34. Um, Now I've also included sections um, 48 to 55 and they include the, the several different types of alimony that are available in Massachusetts. So those include general term alimony, transitional alimony, reimbursement alimony, and rehabilitative alimony. General term alimony is the most common form of alimony. And so we're going to spend most of our time during this presentation talking about general term alimony. Um, The other types um, have different theoretical underpinnings tied to um, the different, you know, the the titles kind of tell you a little bit about, you know, what the basis for them are transitional alimony or, or rehabilitative alimony. And they have different durations, calculations, and termination events that are tied to those theoretical underpinnings. So I just encourage you to, to read those sections and to keep them in mind for your clients, especially in shorter term marriages. Um, but turning our attention to, um, to section 49 in general term alimony. Um, alimony is typically calculated as a, as a percentage difference of the party's incomes. So if you have one person, both parties who have, are, have income, you're gonna take a percentage of the difference. If, some, if one person doesn't have any income, then it's you know, just gonna be a percentage of um, the, the person who does have income. And the percentage typically, um, so you'll see in section 53 um, that it talks about the presumption that alimony is 30 to 35% of the difference in incomes or the recipient's need. So there's a lot really kind of packed into there. So the 30 to 35%, that was at a time when alimony was deductible by the payor and taxable to the recipient. With the passage of the the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, alimony is no longer deductible by the payor and it's no longer taxable to the recipient. So if somebody, if you see an order that was, that's, was entered recently that says somebody gets $10,000 a year of alimony, that's what they have to spend. They don't have to pay taxes on it. Um, unfortunately, the statute that says 30 to 35% was passed before that change in the tax law. So Massachusetts, unfortunately, has the legislature has not acted to adjust those percentages to reflect this very significant tax impact. So it's really incumbent upon you to make a presentation to the court about what the new percentage should be. And there's different programs that discuss this and different calculations, but generally what we're seeing is that people are now thinking of the range being sort of 23 to 28% instead of 30 to 35%. But the judge's you know especially if you're in a in a a county that where the judges might not see alimony as much you need to make them aware of that you need to show how you're calculating the new percentage um the other thing to be aware of in the statute is you know what is income to be calculated the statute refers to what what is going to be counted as income it says it's going to be defined the way it's defined in the child support guidelines, and the child support guidelines have a very broad definition of income, and it's kind of been updated with the times. And so, with the most recent redraft, we saw them, you know, taking into consideration um, different types of, you know, like Uber driver income and and things like that. Um, so it's a very broad definition of income. But when we're talking about alimony, there are a couple of things that are excluded and that's gonna be under section 53C. Um, And so what's excluded is any kind of capital gain income or dividend and interest income that derives from assets that were divided as part of the divorce. Um, Also excluded is any income that was used in the calculation of child support. So if somebody makes $100,000 a year, you're not putting $100,000 into the calculation of child support, and then using that income again to calculate alimony. Um, The other thing that I mentioned is that the statute, when it talks about alimony being 30 to 35%, the difference of incomes or the recipient's need. That word need is really important, and there's a lot of advocacy that you can do around that, whether you represent the payor or you represent the recipient. Um, So if I represent a recipient, I make sure that their financial statement shows a need, that they're not going to have a surplus between whatever their income is um, and their expenses. And I, I find that the courts form financial statement um, which has not been updated in a very long time is not as comprehensive as it as it could or I think should be when it comes to expenses. So I know that, you know, in-house, we have our own um, expense worksheet that we give to our clients to capture other things like, you know, gym memberships or your pet expenses or, um, you know, Ubers, Lyfts, you know, other streaming services. Just you, if you represent the recipient, you want to make sure that their expenses are really as comprehensive as possible so that you're making a showing for need for support. Um, um, So now to discuss duration of alimony, the statute provides presumptive maximum durations based on the length of the marriage. Um, And I won't go through those individually. They're just set out there. But I do want to point out a couple of things about that. The first is that it talks about it being a presumptive maximum duration. But in practice, everyone really kind of treats it as the presumptive duration. But if you want to make an argument, if you're the the payor, that it should be less than that, then then you should definitely try to make those arguments. Um, another important aspect of duration is that the statute does specifically provide for the ability to make an argument that the length of the marriage could be considered to be longer. If you want to quote tack on a period of premarital cohabitation. So if, you know, people were only married for 11 years, but they lived together and they shared all of their expenses together for, you know, six years prior to that you wanna make the argument if you're the the recipient that actually they were married for a period of 17 years. Um, So with the maximum duration, there's no presumptive maximum duration if the parties have been married for 20 years or more. Um, But this actually creates a, a conflict in the law because it also provides that alimony should terminate upon the payer reaching his or her full Social Security retirement age, the age at which they are entitled to full benefits. So that creates a conflict between termination upon retirement age or no presumptive maximum duration for a marriage of more than 20 years. I, I'm very shocked that we're more than 10 years into the Alimony Reform Act and that conflict has not gone up on appeal. Um, But what we're seeing in practice is I think most judges are resolving that conflict in favor of terminating upon the retirement age. So that's the circumstance where you can have somebody who's been married for 35 years, but if their spouse is only a year away from retirement, um, from their social security retirement age, alimony duration might be quite short. Um, And so that's where you might want to make an argument about a disproportionate division of the marital estate. Um, so in addition to, we've discussed um, the amount of alimony, we've talked about duration, um, there's also, also termination. So the automatic termination events are if the recipient remarries or the death of either party. Um, one of the important aspects of the Alimony Reform Act um, was that it really codified also having the ability to terminate in the event of cohabitation. But cohabitation is not an automatic termination event. Somebody needs to bring a complaint for modification, making the allegation that the recipient is cohabitating. There's a lot of very detailed um, language in Section 49D about cohabitation, and I really encourage you to to read that carefully. And just as a practice point, you know, all of these alimony statutes are really long the child support guidelines that Meg discussed are really long. I really encourage you to read through them periodically because every time I do, I'm sort of reminded of here's this aspect that I haven't had a case that emphasized that for a while. And they give you a lot of material to help you brainstorm arguments that you can make on behalf of your client. Um, So the other thing with alimony is that if you are, Settling a case. This is not available if you're trying a case, but you want to be cognizant about whether you want the alimony provisions to be merging or surviving. So merging means that it's modifiable in the event of substantial change of circumstances. And surviving means that um it's it cannot be um nobody can bring a complaint for modification seeking a change. And there are circumstances where you might want to. Merge, depending on if you represent the recipient or the payor, um, and there's circumstances where you would want it to survive. Um, We will often also, if we have a case where there's not going to be alimony, you can waive alimony. Um, And we will also often do a surviving alimony waiver um, if we want there never to be able to be the ability to be alimony. Um, But there's also circumstances, and and Meg is going to talk a little bit more about the interplay between child support and alimony where maybe there's no alimony currently because there is child support, but that you want to leave alimony open um, for the future. Um, And just as a couple of drafting practice points, um, it's a really good idea to be very clear about what it is um, that alimony is being paid on. So that if you are doing a base alimony award based on somebody's salary, and then you have other provisions that are being paid on what Meg references and if, as, and when. So if somebody gets a bonus and we don't know when that's going to be received, they're required to pay a percentage of that if, as, And when they receive it. And it's really important that you define what alimony is payable on. So, is it salary? Is it bonus? Is it just a cash bonus? If somebody is eligible for commissions, um, if somebody receives different kinds of stock awards, options, or RSUs, is that going to be something alimony is going to be paid on? I think something that we're going to see more litigation about um, is the Kavanaugh decision. That Meg referenced um, for the first time referenced the fact that retirement contributions made by uh, an employee's and uh, by by an employer should be included as um, income for purposes of calculating child support. And so, whether or not that's going to apply to alimony as well remains to be seen. Um, but you want to be very careful about how you're defining income for purposes of calculating alimony. Um, In drafting alimony awards, um, if the people don't have any children, that's one thing, but if they do have children, I'm always cognizant about the interplay between child support and alimony because they have different termination events and different durational, um, points. And so I'm, I'm thinking about what's best for my client and what is more likely to terminate first is child support going to be terminating first, or is it more likely that alimony, um, is going to be terminating first because you, you're, you can't have, it's in the statute. You're not going to have concurrent alimony wards. So let's just say that. Um, you know, if somebody is paying um, only child support in the beginning and they pay child support for five years and then the children emancipate and during those that five years they were not receiving alimony. If the presumptive maximum duration of the receipt of alimony is only four years, then they can't come in and seek alimony at that time so that they can't have gotten five years of child support and then come in for the four years of alimony so that they receive a total of support for a period of of nine years. Um, Something that we, the statute um, references, um, the section 34 references, but that's important to make sure that you're providing for is this concept of securing an alimony obligation. So the theory is that if somebody is receiving, I'm just going to use simple numbers. If somebody is receiving $100,000 a year of alimony, and they're eligible to receive that for 10 years, that's a total of a million dollars of alimony they expect to receive over the obligation. But if the payer what payer were to die after two years, then the recipient loses out on $800,000 of alimony. So what we do is we require the alimony payor to have a life insurance obligation to make that down, make up that downfall. So that if they were to pass away in year two, there's sufficient life insurance of which the alimony recipient um, is the beneficiary to make them whole on that lost um, in, on that lost alimony. And we often have obligations that are hybrid of securing an obligation for alimony and child support. Um, And there's no real calculation, you know, for exactly how much should be used to secure that obligation, um, because it's often not as straightforward as I just made it. And with child support, you're not just thinking about, okay, their obligation is 50,000 a year for five years. It's also, you know, what obligation might they have for extracurricular activities? What what might their obligation be for college, and making sure that the other part party is going to be made whole on any lost support in whatever form in the event that the payor dies. Um, so I also wanted to spend some time talking about modification of alimony orders, um, and the most important thing if somebody comes to you and already has an a modify an, an alimony obligation and they're seeking to modify it, the most important thing to check is whether that obligation, well, two things really are important to check. First, is that obligation merging? So it is modifiable or is it surviving? If it's a surviving obligation, then unfortunately they're not going to be able to modify it. If it is merging, the second thing to check is when was that obligation created? because your ability to modify is gonna be different if it was before the Alimony Reform Act and the Alimony Reform Act went into effect on March 1st, 2012. Um, So if it went into effect before the Alimony Reform Act for marriage of less than 20 years, um, they're not gonna be able to change that duration or they're not gonna be able to seek to, to terminate Based on maximum duration. But if there's a case, uh, because that part was not made, or that, I'm sorry, I'm getting my notes confused. So um, if it was pre alimony reform act, you can seek to terminate an alimony obligation on the basis that the maximum duration has been exceeded. But it's not automatic. You have to bring a complaint for modification to do that. The cohabitation. And the retirement provisions of the Alimony Reform Act were not given perspective effect, meaning that if there is um, somebody has reached their full Social Security retirement age, or you feel like the recipient um, is cohabitating, then you don't, you cannot rely on the arguments that the Alimony Reform Act provided. It will simply, you'll have to make that simple um substantial change of circumstances argument and whether that was met. Um, With the one exception being, sometimes people separation agreements will provide a different standard. Maybe it says that, that the alimony will be reviewed or terminated upon a retirement age. So they can set a different standard in the agreement, but it's important to really know what the separation agreement says, when it was enacted, and what can and cannot be changed under the Alimony Reform Act. Um, So with that, I want to turn it back to Meg to talk a little bit more about the interplay between um, alimony and child support and this recent Kavanaugh decision in particular.
0: So, and a couple of things you mentioned, Jordana, I wanted to circle back on um, before jumping into Kavanaugh. So Jordana mentioned merging and surviving terms of a separation agreement. And that particular provision of an agreement is arguably one of the most important provisions. and unfortunately, the provision that people tend to kind of gloss over, maybe they don't explain it to their clients, and their clients don't understand it. And so it's really important that you review that that provision with your client so that they understand, what aspects of an agreement are able to be modified in the future and what aspects are final and non-modifiable so getting back to child support or any child related issue generally um those issues are not are, are not able to survive those are always typically merging terms of an agreement and can always be revisited and that makes sense because For public policy reasons, you wouldn't want to have an agreement that decides, you know, child support or custody provisions um, or the handling of certain child related expenses forever um, without being able to revisit those types of issues if there's a a substantial change in circumstances. So it's important to know that child support and other child related provisions in an agreement will always typically merge. Um, and and essentially, that means that they're able to be modified if there's if there's a basis for modification, and you can establish that there's been a material change in circumstances through a child's emancipation. Um, and so, and the other thing I wanted to touch on, um, which I didn't mention the first time around, but I think it's important to note that child support is intended to cover a child's basic expenses. So that would be housing, um, clothing, food, essentials, child care, health insurance, those types of expenses. What it doesn't include is things like summer camp and activities um, and school tuition. Those are all extra expenses that you should consider. And as a practice tip, You want to try to anticipate what expenses a child may have. Now, if your client has a child who's a year old and isn't involved in any activities yet. You still want to think to the future and what might that child be doing, even if they're not doing anything now because they're too young, it's likely they'll be doing some activities going forward and have some expenses. Um, that need to be addressed as part of the agreement so that your client doesn't have to come back to court several years later to address how swimming lessons are going to be split or soccer is going to be split. So so you always kind of want to be forward thinking and, and try to anticipate what expenses might be coming up in the future that wouldn't necessarily be covered by child support. Um, and I'm glad Jordana mentioned the issue of life insurance. And she mentioned that that's important for purposes of securing um, alimony, but also a child support obligation. And what, uh, what uh, many practitioners um, include in separation agreements um, with respect to life insurance is a step down, at least for, uh, typically for alimony and child support. Um, and in, chi- in the in the case of child support, we generally include a step down around age 18 when a child is going off to college because at that point presumably child support is going to be revisited you're dealing with college tuition that has to be dealt with and your the payor the length of their support obligation the duration of their support obligation at that point is presumably significantly less than it was when when it was initially ordered, so um, you know, and as Jordana said, there's no calculation. There's no um, there. There's it, it's really kind of what makes sense and what's reasonable as you kind of project what the expenses in the future might be. But you always, I I think that it's important if you represent the payor, who's going to have that life insurance obligation to consider a step down so that they don't have to maintain as much coverage when, you know, as as the years go on and presumably their duration, um, becomes shorter. Um, And then, so with regard, I'm gonna jump into Kavanaugh. Um, So Kavanaugh was a 2022 SJC case that everyone should read. We don't have enough time today, unfortunately, for me to summarize the entire case, but it was included in your materials. And if you haven't read it already, um, I would strongly suggest that you do take a look at it, read it a couple of times, Um, There's a lot of information in that case. Um, And there's been kind of a lot of commentary among judges and practitioners who are, I would say, probably more displeased with the decision (laughs) as a whole. um, Because um, unfortunately, most of the judges who decided Kavanaugh did not have a family law background. And so some of the some of the um, some of the rulings that came out of that case just don't make a whole lot of sense. Um, for example, as Jordana mentioned, the cat the uh, SJC and Kavanaugh said that income should include, for purposes of calculating support, four hundred one k contributions and contribution by by employers. And employer contributions to health savings accounts. Now, those are dollars that an employee is never going to receive, and um, at, but but yet they'd be attributed to the empl- to the payor employee for purposes of calculating his or her support obligation. And there have been a, a number of panels about this and about Kavanaugh in General and how to apply that in our in our real practices. And the feedback from most judges has been that that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, yes, in some cases, if someone is trying to negotiate a compensation package where they're trying to minimize their base salary in exchange for you know um, significant employer contributions to a four hundred one k, then okay, I haven't seen that, but. Um, I think that's kind of what the Kavanaugh courts had in mind when um, deciding that income for purposes of calculating support should include employer contributions to a 401k. But just because that's what it says, it doesn't make it doesn't mean that you shouldn't make arguments that that wouldn't be fair or equitable for your clients. And judges have really across the board since Kavanaugh came out have said that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So you should be making those arguments because those are dollars that a client doesn't see and and could potentially result in in an extremely inequitable support order. So again, just getting back to income and what makes sense in terms of what to include for purposes of the guidelines and what not to include, you wanna just be very thoughtful about the arguments you're making. And um, on the child support guidelines, the the different sources of income are defined on pages four through six. And there's 20 or there's 30 different forms of income um, that the court can consider for purposes of child support. And you just want to familiarize yourself with those. And just because a court can consider it, it doesn't mean that it should automatically be factored in to the child support um, calculation. And you want to just be cognizant about what's the best argument to make when it comes to things like variable income or overtime income or income from a second job, which aren't necessarily um, part of a party's base salary. Um, the other um major takeaway from Kavanaugh was the intersection between child support and alimony and how to handle the calculation of support um, when you have a case where, where there could potentially be child support and there could potentially be alimony. And what Kavanaugh, what the court in Kavanaugh said is that you should first calculate alimony. And after um, you've calculated alimony, and alimony would be based on need as Jordana mentioned, um, then calculate child support, but using the party's post alimony incomes. So essentially when you're at that step in Kavanaugh and you're plugging in the party's incomes into the guidelines, you wanna make sure that you're adding alimony to the recipient's income and subtracting it from the payor's income. Then the next step in Kavanaugh is to calculate child support first, then calculate alimony. And then you're supposed to compare, as the third step, compare the two awards and the tax consequences of each. And this goes back to something I mentioned earlier on in the presentation with respect to the party's available net after-tax incomes. and how it's important to illustrate that to the court. So after you've run your analyses kind of all different ways, and I would suggest you run just child support only, Um, you could do alimony only, you could do child support and then alimony, then alimony and child support. However, whatever makes sense in your case, You can run all sorts of different scenarios, but at the end of the day, what the court wants to see and what Kavanaugh says is important for the court to consider is the tax consequences and um, how equitable those various awards are um, kind of at the end of the day. So with respect to the tax consequences, um, as I mentioned, it's important to look at a party's, when you're looking at a party's gross income, you want to tax affect that because they're paying taxes on it. That all of that income is not available to them for purposes of meeting their expenses. So you want to tax affect their income by their tax rate and then either add to that or subtract from that the support that's being paid or received. And that will tell you approximately, these are not perfect calculations, um, but approximately. How much income does that party have left over for purposes of meeting their expenses? And you want to compare the two. So, if, you know, husband has X amount available and wife has Y amount available, and here's their respective expenses. And then the court's job is to fashion an order that's most equitable for the family after taking into account all of those different um, approaches to calculating support. And so, it's really important that you give the judge as many different scenarios as you can, and that you, um, in a very kind of succinct and organized way, lay out your analysis so it's easy to follow. Um, And I think that judges more and more, now that we have Kavanaugh, are appreciating attorneys who take the time to put together even a basic chart that tells the court that, that relays this information to the court because As we know, in these busy motion sessions, courts could be hearing 40 cases about child support, and it's it's very helpful when they're reflecting on a case, and arguments for them to be able to, for judges to be able to look at um, a a party's a party's analysis of. Um, what the most equitable approach to calculating support would be and how they arrived at that particular calculation. So I think that um, definitely read Kavanaugh, but also just bear in mind that that you want to, at the end of the day, make the most, um, you want to, at the end of the day, make an argument and advocate for your client in a way that. Follows the analysis in Kavanaugh, um, but also um, puts them in the most advantageous position possible from either a child support position or an alimony or perspective or an alimony perspective, taking into account all of the factors we've described. So base support. Additional support payable on bonuses, how child care is handled, how health insurance is handled, and just every aspect of it—just lay it out as clearly as possible. Um, and judges will review it, and they—they—they're very grateful to have that analysis. So I would—I would recommend that you do that in these cases where you have both a child support and you know potentially an alimony obligation.
1: So I just—I just wanted to add to that that. Um, for people who are very new practitioners, one of the reasons this, this decision has, has been, you know, created quite a stir is that it used to be that in 99% of our cases, we calculated child support first. And if there wasn't any excess income above the cap, which had been 250, now it's 400,000, then we didn't even talk about alimony. Um, and so now to be asked to calculate it both ways, and then to look at a tax effect, um, really just threw a lot of stuff stuff up in the air. And what Megan is saying about presenting all of these arguments to the court is, is absolutely correct. And they appreciate it. But one of the big issues is that you as an attorney can make that presentation at a pre-trial conference or at a motion session about what you believe the tax effect is going to be. But if you're going to trial, you need to have a CPA, you need to have an expert present to that. And not every client can afford that. Um, And it just slows down the trial process and makes it a lot more complicated. And so that's, you know, one of the criticisms of Kavanaugh. Um, There's another issue I wanted to mention that comes up in support, both for purposes of child support and alimony. And Meg did use this word, which is um, attribution of income. And so sometimes um, you're going to want to make an argument that for purposes of calculating support, whether that's child support or alimony, a figure should be used that somebody's not actually earning. And it can be for a number of reasons. Um, perhaps somebody has recently lost a job and they had been making $75,000 a year for years, and now they're making zero. But you believe that with um, a reasonable effort, they could be making seventy five thousand again, so that's the amount that you're asking the court to base a support calculation on. Um, or maybe it's somebody who left the workforce to raise children. Now those children are older. They did have a history of significant earnings or reasonable earnings, um, and you're asking that that be attributed to them. Some courts will also just, you know, if somebody doesn't have young children at home. Um, They'll attribute even just minimum wage. So those are arguments that you should be aware of. There's a lot of case law out there on the issue of attribution of income. Um, And so you could just, you know, read those cases for the arguments to make. But I just, I did want to put that out there that you're not constrained to use the income figure that somebody else, that your client's um, spouse or the partner, um, is using. You can make other arguments for a different income figure. Um, so we, it is time to wrap up. Um, but as often happens in in our Zoom world, we haven't got any questions from our panelists. Um, but I do. We we do welcome questions. And if something occurs to you later, um, we're happy to to have you reach out. Um, and we're sorry we couldn't be with you in person. But we hope you found this um, informative and providing an introduction to both child support and alimony, and also pointing you in the direction of different case law and different issues that you can dig into more um,
0: for, for a more in-depth um, analysis of different issues.